fantastic. I mean, uh, you guys are going to have to cut us some slack. No, that was fantastic. That was really impressive. Yeah, you can give a round of applause. That was great. Wow, that's a tough act to follow. Uh, yeah, I should probably start with prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to come together to worship you and to learn more about you through your word, God. I, I pray that you would really give us this blessing of, of knowing you more, of, of deepening our walk with you. I pray, I pray that you would use yeah, these poor, weak, stumbling lips to give your truth to these people who uh, they didn't come to hear me. They, come, they came to hear you. God, and we just want to acknowledge that and, and we want to set our hearts and our hope on you. So, we thank you that you will not uh, let us hope in vain, but that you will satisfy the desires of our hearts in you. And we just want to thank you for everything you're going to do and uh, that you're going to carry us into this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so uh, my name is Aaron Snyder. I serve in Germany. We've been missionaries there for the last 10 years, uh, my wife and now five children. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. It's exciting. <laughs> Uh, actually, I have been teaching in German the last uh, seven years, so if I stand up here and start like, ah, I don't know, just give me, give me a break, cut, cut me some slack, I'm, I'm struggling. This is a weird thing for me now, speaking in, or teaching in English, uh, but uh, I'm hoping it's going to go well. And, and the truth is, when a missionary comes home from the mission field, what the missionary really wants to do is just come and give you the absolute best gospel presentation you've ever heard, because that's what makes us missionaries, because we like it when people get to know about Jesus. But an old missionary friend of mine told me once that that's, that's not the right thing to do because it's the job of the pastor and the elders in the church to be teaching the Bible and, and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ every week. What the missionary is supposed to do is to bring the perspective of what God is doing elsewhere. So, of course, we're going to be flipping back and forth through our Bible. But, um, yeah. It, it also seems to me in the Bible that uh, it is the task of a missionary when he comes back to talk about what he has experienced. And, that, and we see that, for example, in Acts 14, 26. I'm going to be hitting lots of verses. You can go ahead and maybe flip open Acts 15, 3. But uh, here a little higher, it says, Finally they, being Paul and Barnabas, returned by ship to Antioch of Syria, where, they, where their journey had begun. The believers there had entrusted them to the grace of God to do the work that they now completed. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith so the Gentile, uh, to the Gentiles too. And they stayed there with the believers a long time. And then shortly thereafter, they get sent out and they're visit, visiting other churches, Acts 15.3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to the brothers. And uh, I see that as the, the mission of a missionary when he comes back is to recount in detail the things that God is doing elsewhere to bring great joy to you. And, and I also find with myself that when I hear about how other people are coming to know Jesus, then that also kind of revitalizes my uh, joy in the Lord, the, the joy of my salvation. It's like when, when I go to a wedding, uh, you've probably had the same experience who are married. You go to a wedding and then uh, the wife wants to squeeze your hand because everybody's thinking about their wedding day. And, and suddenly you're kind of brought back into your experience and into your first love. And that's kind of that revitalizing experience. And we get to have that when we hear about other people coming to know Jesus. And it kind of brings us back to that moment of first love where, where we first came to know him and we were so excited. And 
Yeah, that's that's a, such a, a joy, such a great joy that uh, it brings us back to. So our subject today is the joy of salvation with the goal to rejoice in God's salvation. And uh, to rejoice in God's salvation, with that I mean that we rejoice in God's salvation that He's doing among the nations, about which I'll share a little bit, that we also rejoice in God's salvation, what He's done for us, that we're refreshed in that, and uh, also that we're re- we rejoice in God's salvation for what he's going to do, that we would even, as Paul puts it, uh, be made jealous, that we'd be stirred up to jealousy uh, for his work in our lives. And uh, yeah, you're probably familiar with the the passage of David, uh, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Psalm 51.12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. It's interesting how the joy brings us to the point of obedience. It should bring us to the point of obedience. It's when we really, we're just happy to be in Christ that we're also excited to obey Him. And uh, I really hope that we can stir that up. Also, something that, that God's been speaking to you re- lately is you've probably heard that love is not only an emotion, but that love is also a choice. It actually, it's a choice before it's an emotion in many cases. And I think it's true with joy as well. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice he wouldn't tell us, he wouldn't give us this command to rejoice in the Lord if it wasn't a decision. He wouldn't tell us to do something that we can't do. And so, in a certain sense, he, it is a decision. It's a, first a decision. I'm going to choose to rejoice in the Lord, and then the emotion often comes after that. And, you know, sometimes it's, we're going through really difficult struggles, and we can't get up to that 10 level of rejoicing. But, you know, maybe if we're at a 2 and we choose to focus on, on things we can be thankful for and choose to rejoice in the Lord. Maybe we go from a two to a four or something that we, that we still grow in our joy in the Lord. Yeah, so I uh, think you see we're, we're going to be bouncing around, hitting lots of passages. I got, I've been there 10 years. I have so much I'd love to share with you. We're just going to be moving quickly. I hope, you know, if you take notes, excellent, because otherwise you're probably not going to remember most of this message. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited to be here with you all. Uh, Craig was sharing with me a little bit of, uh, of your story, and I'm just really happy to be here and hope that I can give you some joy, uh, even as the Germans would say, Vorfreude. Uh, that word means uh, rejoicing ahead of time or rejoicing about something that's going to happen. Yeah, that we rejoice about what God's done, what He's doing, and what He's going to do. And uh, yeah, but that, this last one, this Vorfreude, this rejoicing about what can happen or should happen or will happen. Um, I, I find that idea of stirring up to jealousy so interesting. That's, uh, that's in Romans 13, oh, one, excuse me, Romans 11, 13. Uh, it says, For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. I have always found that so fascinating that Paul says, I magnify my ministry. I mean, that sounds kind of, kind of narcissistic almost, right? He's saying, I magnify my ministry. I'm going to show you guys what God's doing through me. And that, like I said, it sounds narcissistic, but then we see his, his point is not to glorify himself, but to glorify Christ and to provoke others to jealousy, which of course our first reaction is, wait, I thought jealousy was a bad thing, right? Jealousy is not good. It says you shall not covet your neighbor's house or his ox or his uh, Volkswagen or Mercedes or whatever of your neighbors. You're not supposed to covet those things. So the uh, why is it in here? But uh, I think it just, it's such an interesting idea that, that um, 
apparently it's okay for us to be jealous of a deeper walk with the Lord. Apparently it's okay for us to be jealous of of what God's doing, uh, to, to want to say, I want that I want God to work in my life in those kind of powerful ways that I'm hearing. And I think that we are in a, a culture and a time and place prepared by God where it's it's important that something happens. I mean, you know, you are a lovely group of people, but uh, as, as Greg said, I would confirm that uh, there's a lot of uh, gray heads that should be honored in this building. And, and that's a, a very good thing. And yet, God's work always has to go on, as it says in the, the Psalms, uh, that we recount the glorious deeds of the Lord to the next generation. And uh, for that to happen, then I think there are some lessons that can be learned from Germany. Because as you may know, Europe has long since been secularized. A lot of people use the word post-Christian. I don't like the term post-Christian because it's not really post-Christian. One, we measure time by Jesus. Nothing is really past Jesus, right? He is the middle point of all history, Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. They can change it to the common era if they want, but we all know what happened on zero, right? We know who's the middle point of all history. We know that it's about Jesus. And, and the benefits that Europeans enjoy all comes from Jesus. So it's not really a post-Christian world. I, I don't like that expression. You can't be... Uh, enjoying the blessings of something and still say, oh, well, we're, we're past that. But the truth is that they're a very secular society and they've been a secular society for a long time. You know, they maybe go to church on Easter or Christmas, but for the most part, they've been secularized. And unfortunately, we've been seeing that here in America. I honestly, I was shocked when I came back two years ago. I'm like, what is this place? What is going on? I, my uh, wife's family's from California and especially there on, on the West Coast, I'm like, what is going on there? What, what is this place? And I, I looked into the numbers, and it's, it's true. There are more nuns on the West Coast, none being people who have no affiliation to Christianity or whatever. There are more nuns on the West Coast, and probably lots of areas in America, um, than in Germany. And that, to me, was shocking that, that parts of America have, have become more secular than Europe. Now, the quality of the Christians is, is probably different, but that was that was a shock for me, you know, because I went into the mission field because I, I felt like man, everything's you know it's covered here in America. People don't need me here. I'm not that good of a preacher. They got it all covered. I'm going to go out to the nations, you know. And actually, my my goal was actually to go to the Middle East, but God bogged me down in Germany. But uh, I'll I'll explain why uh, later. I didn't know why for a very long time, but uh, I hope to explain that later. But anyhow, we, uh, yeah, we can learn a lot of lessons from what has happened in Germany. And, and so I'm not only going to um, share all the good stuff or some of the good stuff that's happened, but I'm also going to share some of the hard-earned lessons today because unlike, I don't know, Papua New Guinea or something where we don't really have to deal with uh, headhunting cannibals or something, you know, those missionaries, uh, the lessons might not be able to carry over, but but living in a secular world and reaching the next generation in a secular world is something that I honestly see a lot of churches in America struggling with. Because, for example, it used to be you hang the dove outside of a building somewhere and say there's going to be a service on Sunday and people show up. I've heard lots of pastors who in the, you know, in the 70s, they, they get a building and they, they put up the dove, the Calvary Chapel, and they say, you know, we'll be here at this time and 50 people show up on the first Sunday. 
And having lived in Germany, I can't imagine that. Like, that is such a foreign concept for me. That's crazy that uh, you just, like, open the doors and people show up. And our our pastor back in California, it was kind of like that. You know, first Sunday, 50 people show up. So, you know, I, I kind of, I hear these stories from all these other Calvary Chapel pastors. I'm all stoked, you know. I'm like, all right, I'm going to get my chance, you know. And I, I go out in the mission field and, and plug in with this little church. And I'm like, okay, now it's now it's going to go, you know. I'm I'm thinking, I got trained up. He taught me how to teach. And, like, I got these skills. And it's going to go awesome, you know, because, you know, I know I have the Holy Spirit. And he's ready to do stuff. I know God wants to glorify himself. So I'm just going to walk into this. And I do what Calvary, well, pretty much all Christians here do, you know, you you make a ministry and you put a sign in the door of the church and we were in a central location. There were hundreds of people walking past and I put up that sign and I thought, it's going to be great. We're going to have an English Bible study. Germans love learning English. It's going to be awesome. And so I come there and I sit down and I wait and I wait and I wait and nobody shows up. Because in a secular world, people don't care. They don't care about a Bible study. Even though it's English and English is cool and modern, they didn't care. Nobody showed up. And... uh I was going to start a youth group. Same thing. No young people. So, you know, wait, okay. This is, I thought this is what we're supposed to do. And we're like, there's nothing happening. And we had to learn to do that, which Jesus said from even before the beginning of the church, to go there for and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Not, you know, uh, invite and make disciples, invite and teach, you know, but he says go Go forth, therefore, and make disciples, and then teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I've, I find a lot of reaching people in secular society, it, it's not about the pastor or the preacher on Sunday. Of course, you must teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, but the real discipleship happens in homes. And I heard that you guys have the, the vision at some point to do home groups, small groups. I think that is fantastic because it is so much easier to invite somebody into your home than to invite them into a church. And it's so much more meaningful that for that person. When you invite somebody to a church, I mean, we're still a very conservative area. Maybe they, they understand that you mean that as a very loving gesture. But if secularization goes to a certain point, they start thinking, well, you're just trying to, you know, convert me to your group. You know, they don't understand the joy of salvation. They don't understand how much you love Jesus and you want other people to know about Jesus. They think you're just, you know, trying to put another notch on your belt or something, and they're very wary of that. But if you invite them into their into your home, even to a Bible study, then it's much easier that they feel honored that you have invited them into your home. And as many people in many cultures believe, when you let somebody into your home, you let them into your heart. And that is crucial, especially for the continuing work of discipleship, especially not just that somebody comes and gets excited and gets saved and gets baptized, but that he continues to grow in the Lord, that he really learns to follow Jesus. Because I mean, we know there are lots of people. They'll come on Sunday and they'll nod along and then they won't apply anything, right? Discipleship is really learning to do those things that Jesus teaches, what it looks like in our daily life. Uh, <laughs> maybe break it up. There's a, there's a joke. There was a pastor and he was preaching and in the back there were coats on the, on the coat rack. And he said, hey, somebody's stealing the coats from the coat rack. I said, amen, brother. I said, no, no, somebody's stealing the coats from the coat rack. I said, preach it, brother. I said, no, seriously, he's walking out the door. And they're like, hallelujah. <laughs> and then they get up after the service and they walk in the back of the church and there's no coats there. I'm like, where are all our coats? And he's, uh, he said, I told you that somebody's taking them. And he said, well, I thought you were just preaching. 
And oftentimes that's how it goes, right? We we hear the message and we're like, wow, that sounds really nice. And then we go home and it's back to normal life. And this, this process of discipleship, not only for new believers, but also for us, just to check our own hearts. Am I really living out what I proclaim? Is is this really in my life? And I mean, I've heard you guys also come from the United Methodist Church. That's That's my background. And that was really built around and grew through the class meeting system, through, in essence, small groups, being there, being accountable to one another. And uh, that is, is something, I think, in a secular world we have to get back to, that, that meeting with one another, that, that iron sharpening iron, exhorting one another as long as, as it is called today, in essence, every day exhorting one another. Yeah. And so my experience in Germany, it, it uh, started with suffering. <laughs> as it says in Romans 5.3, uh, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And so we see in this long chain of things, suffering is often the first that comes, and, and usually we kind of wince when we hear about suffering, because we, I mean, we don't really like suffering. And, and I've often wondered, okay, how can I... I see through the Bible, it keeps talking about this whole suffering thing. I don't really like it. God, help me understand this so I can, you know, be, be more joyful in bearing my cross. And, and one thing that he showed me was, uh, was just the example that's used throughout the Scripture of running, of, of fighting, fighting the good fight, of, of running the race of faith. And, and in these exercises... Uh, endorphins are produced, which I think is so interesting. We, we, we push ourselves to the point of pain, but then our body produces endorphin. And endorphin actually is, is a, uh, a shorter word for endogenous morphine, which means morphine produced in your body. It's actually the word endorphin. It's, it's, you're getting a morphine kick from your body because you've chosen to embrace that suffering of that, of that physical activity. And I think uh, that's what our, our walk of faith should be. It shouldn't be like, oh, I'm just helplessly suffering here. But, but actually, if we choose to engage the call of God, then that produces suffering. But at the same time, there's that automatic, well, automatic, but also a little bit lagging, but that comfort that, in essence, that spiritual endorphin that, that comes and comforts us in our affliction. Like we see Paul writing about often, he often talks about comforting others in, in their affliction and being comforted ourselves in affliction. Yeah. So, uh, that was one hard lesson, seeing that uh, you have to really know people, get to know people, meet with people to make disciples. That um, in Europe and all the more in America, uh, it's not just you put up a dove or a sign and people come. I, I think part of the problem is that still works a little bit it still works enough that people keep doing it, right? It might not bring in 50 people, but it brings in four or five people, and they're like, well, it still works, you know? And so we don't change our methods as long as it works. And I'm here to also encourage you guys to be open to change methods, especially to just meet people personally, um, to, to meet from home to home, as it says in the Scriptures. Yeah. Um, so that was one hard lesson. Another hard lesson was, uh, well, I'll call hard head and a soft heart. So in Ephesians 4.32, it says that we should be tenderhearted. But uh, in Ezekiel 3.9, here, I'm going to go ahead and open that one up because I like that one. That's That's been a verse for my time in Germany because uh, they are, 
I don't know if you've heard about Germans, but they can be pretty stubborn, huh? I think. <laughs> Which can also be redeemed. I, I know a missionary friend, he says, if I, ever, if I ever come to a task that nobody else is, is patient or stubborn enough to get through, I put a German on that guy, and then, and then he'll get cracked, you know? <laughs> okay, so Ezekiel 3, a 9. Ezekiel 3, 9, it says here, let me find it real quick. Okay. Uh, starting in verse 8. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, your forehead as hard as their foreheads, like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And uh, that has been one of the greatest blessings of my time in Germany, is learning, or I don't even know if you call it learning, it's more just bashing your head against the wall or against other people's foreheads till it becomes hard. Um, but but this, this interesting contrast of, on the one side, God says we should have a tender heart. And on the other hand, he gives Ezekiel the blessing of a really hard forehead, of this forehead like, like diamond, harder than emery, this forehead of, of someone who, like a, a ram, is able to put his head down and plow through because this people is a stubborn people. Um, and, and I think that's a blessing if we can come to that point because most people are either very very soft in their nature or they're very hard in their nature right you have these hard people and that was my experience when i got to germany even my even my boss you know he'd say something to me and i'd be like i would not speak to a dog that way you know and but but this guy's a christian and he was probably thinking you know what i was so gentle with him because <laughs> because it's germany man i mean uh, the germans have an expression it's a uh, my silence is praise enough, which means, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if I don't find anything to complain about, that's your praise. All right? That's your sign you did a good job. I don't find anything to complain about. That's like saying, well done. Okay? My silence is praise enough. Okay? So that, that's what, what these people are like. And uh, I praise God that, you know, the interesting thing is Christians all over the whole world are similar. You know, it's just the, the work of Jesus makes people. So in our, in our church in Zegan, there's amazing people who you would love. But <laughs> those who don't know Jesus, it's a tough go. Um, it's also interesting, the Germans, because they only meet Christians from America, they think Americans are like the holiest people ever. They mostly only meet pastors. And they think uh, Americans are like the most saintly, holy people ever. And then they come and visit America and they're like, where am I? <laughs> this, is, this is not what I was expecting. Yeah. So anyhow... Um, he calls us to both have a soft heart and a hard forehead, and then the, we also have to be discerning to know how to meet every person in every situation, right? There are, you see that with Jesus. There were situations with the Pharisees or the other religious leaders. He put his head down and let them have it. But there are other situations, those who are broken, those who are hurting, those who are struggling with their identity. He comes, he's close to them, he gives them a new identity, and he calls them to a new life. He comforts them in their affliction. And so that's, that's the secret and something I've learned from Germany is, is, to, is to put your head down because honestly, the work of God is often so hindered because Christians are so nice and they can't put their head down and make the breakthrough in the difficult conversations. They're just, they're nice. But you know what? The Bible never says that we should be nice. The Bible says we should be loving and being loving is usually being nice, but not always. Sometimes being loving is saying the difficult truth that someone needs to hear. So that was another hard lesson for me. I just 
kind of got my head bashed in until it became hard <laughs> in essence. And uh, yeah, I guess that's something that can't just be taught. And yet, I think um, when we recognize that, we can take those little steps of obedience. Those times when really, because we're passive, we'd kind of just like to avoid the difficult conversation. And we can be like, no, you know what? I think this is a situation, even though I would really just like to avoid this whole mess, I'm just going to step in there and do the hard thing and walk through that difficult conversation instead of just smoothing over it. And uh, uh, as a side point, uh, uh, it's like 18 side points so far, but <laughs> as, as another point, um, scientists have also proven that marriages with a, uh, oh, that's a tough one. Um, with like a low threshold of negativity, uh, those marriages last longer, which in essence means if you don't sweat the small stuff at some point in your marriage, if you don't just say, hey, you know what, that thing that you always do, it actually really bugs me. If you never have that conversation, then a lot of people will just let all those little things build up and up and up until they just give up on the marriage. And sometimes it's important just to say, okay, come on, got to have this talk. And we just walk through it. And then, and then it gets a little bit better. Actually, usually you have to have that talk like 45 times, and then it gets a little bit better, right? <laughs> but step by step. So anyhow, uh, that was a tough lesson. Jesus came to serve and not to be served. Or actually, he says it the other way. And it's Matthew 20. I'm going to open that up real quick. Matthew 20, 28. Jesus says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Right, so Jesus says not to be served, but to serve. And uh, when I went to Germany, I wanted to serve. But if, if I'm honest in my appraisal, looking back, I think I wanted to serve and be served. And I think that's the way with a lot of us, right? We want, we want to serve. Yes, we want to serve. But there's also a part of us we want to have some sort. We want something from it, right? We want a reward or something, maybe some respect we want to serve, but we also want to be served. And I, I found that that doesn't play out, especially in the secular world. But we have to come with this desire to serve and no expectation to be served. We come not to be served. There's no expectation. Jesus was served in his life, but that was not his expectation. That was not his goal. There were people who provided for his needs, but that's not what he wanted. His goal was not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And for me, that was also... Uh, a very important moment in learning, just realizing um, to serve and be served is not the goal, but really just to say, you know what? It's going to cost me everything to give my life a ransom, and, and yet I want to do that because it is the most, most God-glorifying way to live, and it's the most fulfilling way to live. Uh, and so I was having these difficult lessons, learning to confront situations, learning that Especially with Germans, I couldn't, as the Germans say, pour it through the flowers. <laughs> say, don't pour it through the flowers, which means um, you can't be indirect with Germans. They don't. They literally, like, often do not understand an indirect comment. They're like, you know what? It'd be great if you'd stop doing this. And they're like, okay, but I don't think it's great. I think it's great the way I'm doing it. <laughs> so you have to be like, please stop. Please don't do that. And they're like, are you sure? I think it's really no, really. I know. I've been observing. Please stop. Like, okay, I understand this. I don't understand the flowers thing with the flowing through the flowers. This is too much. Yeah, and so 
we 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 learned to to do those things. But you know, I, I, after a while, I just felt beat up, and I was looking in the past and how often I had been passive and not had the conversations that I needed to have over such a long period of time, and the places where I wanted to be served and not just serve. And I was looking back, and I was discouraged, and I was just ready to go home. And uh, about that time, as often is with the the grace of God. Uh, I got an an invitation to become the youth pastor in the largest uh, youth group in the Calvary Chapel in Western Europe. Um, But I was just like, "Ah, yeah, you know what? I just, I don't know that I'm qualified. Like, it's just, I just see all these problems in me. I know I can't do it. And, and, you know, I've heard from a lot of other pastors and and missionaries, especially missionaries, that usually they come in with all this energy and like, I'm going to save the world. And then they try and they try and they try and they try and they don't get anywhere. And they come to the point where they're like, I can't do it. And God's like, exactly, exactly. You can't do it. So now, now we can work together. Okay. I have to do it. I'm going to use you. But, huh. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I was just so beat up though. I was like, you know what? Even though this, this wonderful opportunity is there, I just don't feel qualified. I'm just... <laughs> I think I'm just going to go back to construction or something. And uh, I was I was on the way to the bathroom. I remember the moment. And uh, <clears throat> I just, you know, you can call it a prompting of the Holy Spirit, reminding me of a Bible text or something. But uh, I just, I just had this impression in my mind, Aaron, do you love me? And uh, if you're, if you're familiar with John 21, where, where Peter's like, you know what, I'm done with ministry. Jesus can't use me anymore. Uh, you know, I have all these issues, these problems. I'm hot-headed. I'm just going to go back to fishing. That's when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. And so that moment for me, I said, okay. Now, I've messed all this stuff up. I've realized I can't do it. But if you really want me to just continue being a shepherd, to continue pastoring people, then that's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> and so I, I moved on to uh, this place called Ziegen, which is the rainiest city in Germany. <laughs> or, uh, you know, if you're a hopeful person, you call it the greenest city in Germany, which is also true. So, um, yeah, and, and we were there and, you know, things began to change. Uh, it was it was move of God. Had all kinds of people coming to faith: Muslims, Hindus, Yazidis, animists, atheists, agnostic, young and old. Uh, just all kinds of people coming to know the Lord of different religions, sexual orientations, worldviews. They were they were getting saved and experiencing life change. We at one point we baptized fifteen teenagers at once. Just, just God doing incredible stuff, you know, and, and like, <laughs> like the kind of teenagers where I was like, man, if I was in school, I'd be intimidated because you're like really cool, you know, <laughs> like God just reaching all sorts of people. And uh, in fact, at one point I was speaking with the head pastor and, you know, there, once a church gets established to a certain point, people start complaining about all kinds of stuff. And, and so I was like, you know, what? we need more dirt in the church. You know, it says, it says where, where uh, uh, there's an ox, there's much strength. Or, um, I'm sorry, it goes the other way. Um, where there is no ox, the stall is clean, but with an ox comes much strength, right? So if you want this power, then you, it needs to get messy at some point. And so I was just like, okay, Lord, bring some more dirt into the church. And I kid you not, as we say amen, this big 
heavyset guy with beard and leather jacket and tattoos and rings. He comes over and he's like, you know, I, I just saw the church. I felt like, you know, I need to get my life right with the Lord. <laughs> it's like incredible, man. This is just crazy. And uh, yeah, God, God just been doing all kinds of, of amazing things. And of course, there was the refugee crisis back then. And, and that's where I kind of started to understand why God had kept me there. You know, I wanted to go to the Middle East. I was ready to give my life serving Muslims. And, and yet I couldn't find an organization. I was blocked and it just wasn't working out. And I even learned Farsi, the Persian language, the language of the, the Iranians and the Afghanis. I mean, not really well, but en- enough to communicate some. And I just learned it in faith just because I felt like, you know, at some point I'm going to need this. And the refugee crisis happened, and then they all came to us. And then we were able to minister much more freely among people from Iran and Afghanistan and uh, other uh, Muslim countries than we would anywhere else. And we got to start a Farsi church and an Arabic-speaking church. When I say we, I really mean we as a collective church. You know, it was amazing. So many of those things that happened, you look back and you're like, no one person did this. And yet, had one person been not been there, then I don't think it would have happened at all. And so like, no one person did it, and yet every person was essential to bring these people to this radical transformation of faith. I mean, um, these Muslims, it cost them so much, they, they call their parents and they're like, hey, I've, <laughs> I know you told me no matter what I do when I go, I shouldn't become a Christian, I'm, but... And then they're, you know, bah, 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 and the yelling, and you're dead to me, and I never want to see you again. And, you know, they're uh, very passionate people. You know, they ended up restoring some of the relationships. But uh, it, it cost them. Some of them, they're really cut off. Uh, think of one one woman who was just weeping in front of me because all of, she, you know, she is a woman, became a Christian, and the husbands of all the other Afghani women were like, well, I don't want you infecting my wife. And so they commanded all their wives, you will have nothing to do with this woman. And suddenly she's there. She doesn't speak English, doesn't speak German. She only speaks Dari well. And now she has no friends. And then the saddest part of, of many of those stories is be, yeah, the church did not do a good job receiving these people who had surrendered everything to Jesus. And I know it sounds like you hear that and you're like, man, if, if somebody from Afghanistan really radically gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ here in our midst, we would take care of them, right? And, and maybe that's true. And yet the problem is, I don't, it's not a problem, but, but oftentimes if, if one person makes such a big decision, then oftentimes, especially when they see a life transformation, then other Muslims or people from Yazidis or other groups will begin to make those decisions. And suddenly, it's not a cute quota. It's not the token Afghani guy. Suddenly, it's a growing group of more and more people who, who are speaking the strange language and cooking this weird food that smells different, and they walk different, and they act different, and they sit different, and they talk different. And suddenly, especially as this group grows and people begin to be uncomfortable, it's kind of like the synagogue in Pisaida and in, in, in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, there's this, this synagogue, and they're actually, they're obviously open. They have lots of converts from, from the Gentiles. But then when Paul preaches there, and suddenly the whole city's crowding in, wanting to hear the word of God, then they start resisting the word, and they start fighting with Paul about what's going on. They don't want all these other people to be coming into their, they want to be in control. They don't want this, this, this church to spread beyond the reach of their, of their control. And, and so they resist it. And unfortunately, we even see that in the Bible in the, uh, <clears throat> the church of, uh, I'm sorry, the general church with, among the Hellenists. 
among the uh, Greek-speaking widows, that they were being neglected in the daily distribution, right? So they were the, the really Jewish widows, the, the people who really fit into their mold correctly, and then there were the Hellenist widows, the, Jew, the, the Greek widows, you know, the kind of worldly people. And they wouldn't always get the food in the daily distribution because they were a little different. And that, in essence, they were being treated as second-class citizens. And unfortunately, that's what I saw after so many of these precious people surrendered everything to become Christians, that they began being treated like second-class citizens. And I, would, I wish I could tell you that that was all over, but it's not. And unfortunately, the devil also doesn't sleep. And I have seen more young men die among this group than I have seen at any other given point in my life. Um, just, just there is definitely a spiritual conflict. If you don't believe in, in a spiritual conflict, then you just need to work with Muslims for a while because it is incredible. The devil does not want to let these guys go. And, um, you know, just about six weeks ago, uh, one of the Afghani guys, uh, he actually died from a tonsil removal surgery. Yeah, just got botched somehow, and, and he died. And unfortunately, he wasn't even a believer. Oftentimes, I've noticed that the devil likes to take off the guys on the peripheries, on the edges, you know, who are looking in, thinking about, you know, maybe maybe I should become a Christian. You know, he was friends with all the Christian believers, and then... Uh, and he was, he was gone, and now, you know, his wife is in pieces. You can you can gladly pay for pray for these guys, because uh, the rest of the believers, you know, they've they've lost two in the last year, and it's a pretty closed group, and just you know, dying of all kinds of random things, because um, like I said, the devil's not sleeping, and, and he does not want them to grow in the Lord and and have children. Oh, it's such. <laughs> I'm getting distracted again, but it's such a beautiful thing. I, I loved it. It's uh, just seeing my little white babies play with their little brown children. I don't know what it was, and just that that we come from opposite sides of the world, and and it could be that that I and his father would have been battling in Afghanistan if the situation was different, and yet our children were together playing together, and it was just such a beautiful moment. Um. And and when I see that, I just I want it to grow, and yet, yeah, our our selfishness, our flesh, can get in the way. And unfortunately, it's not. It wasn't only that way in the church I came from, but everyone who has seen a work among Muslims in Germany says they've had the same experiences, where people in the church will will curse the the Muslim converts, they'll yell at them, they'll chase them out of the churches. Many of the the Farsi churches have gone from building to building because yes, they smell different. And they act different, and they stay up too late, as far as we're concerned, and and they do things that that are culturally different, and we might not like. And yet, God doesn't do His work all at once. Yeah, we need to leave room for God to do His work to to bring people on the sanctifying journey. And it's not, you know, was it that way with you guys? Did you just like wake up one day and you're like, I'm sanctified? You know, I'm just. I got everything taken care of. It was just yesterday, I don't know, I was I was sleeping in my urine in the gutter with a needle in my arm, and now I'm perfect. Like, that wasn't my experience. I don't know what you guys have gone through, but I don't know anybody who's had that experience. It's it's a process of sanctification, and sometimes sometimes we need to let God do His work. We need to let the Holy Spirit do His work. Yeah, the Holy Spirit can use us, but, but we're, like, we are not the spokesperson of the Holy Spirit. Well... That might not be true. I'll have to think about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to put. Some, I'm sorry. I got to put some more thought before I make a definite statement about that. But um, the the fact is that 
for example, there was this, this guy actually um, ministered to this hell's angel while he was going through therapy. And then his wife told me about this young guy who was also an alcoholic. He was a metalhead and, and he was struggling. And, and uh, he, wa- he kept saying he really wanted to do a confession because he comes from a Catholic background. And so I hopped on my bike and I rode out to his, uh, his halfway home. And, uh, and he's like, oh, priest, you showed up. I can't believe it. Oh, Father, please let me confess. I have so many. It's been so long since my last confession. Please bless me. I was like, okay, well, so you know, everyone who believes in Jesus is a priest. Yeah, we're, we're all priests uh, according to Jesus, but uh, I will gladly listen to your confession, and I will gladly pray for you and bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was all excited, you know, and I come into his house, and it's, he's a metalhead, you know, so there's just all this stuff, and he's, he's dressed in black, and a big beard, and the, and the shaved head, and he has the Thor of Hammer hanging around his neck. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. That's a, a pagan symbol that's used a lot in, in metal music, because they like being pagan, because I don't exactly love Jesus, so a lot of them. So this pagan uh, Thor symbol. And uh, I'm like, so if you're seeking Jesus, why do you have this, this Thor hammer around your neck? And he's like, well, you know, the Thor's strong and my God's strong. And so I wear it as a symbol to remind me of God's strength, you know? And I, I kind of, as I'm like, God, should I deal with this right now? Or should we just kind of let it be for now? And I just, I, I had the sense, you know what? Focus on Jesus. Just, just focus on Jesus. Don't get distracted by these, by these minor outward things. That there's time for that. And so we just we discussed Jesus, and I listened to his confession, and I encouraged him, and I laid hands and prayed for him, and gave him some Bible verses, and he was super encouraged. Actually, now he recently got uh, baptized, and he's in a. Uh, our church has a a program to help people for like the year or two after they they come down from from their. Uh, substance abuse problems, just to, they, they come together and they work as gardeners or uh, as laborers and they, they have Bible study together every night. And so he's, he's super stoked, man. This guy is, he's just always, you know, just shining with, with joy of the Lord. Uh, it's just super contagious. But um, so I go away and I meet uh, this lady who had first informed me about it on Sunday at church. And she said, you know what? The funniest thing happened. Uh, you met with him, and you know he's just—he's when the Germans say he's out of his little house, he's out of his cottage. He's just—he's so excited. And uh, she said, and you know the funny thing is, he—he he said he just doesn't feel comfortable about wearing that Thor's hammer anymore. He said he doesn't know what it is, but since you prayed for him, he just doesn't feel like it fits anymore. And so he took it off and threw it away. You know, and sometimes we just—we got to leave the Holy Spirit room to work. We focus on Jesus. Yeah. We, you you might think that somebody comes in and they're in a political party and you're like, you can't be in that party and be a Christian. But that that's probably not the first thing Jesus wants you to work on. It is possible to get somebody in a different political party and they're still unsaved, right? We want the first thing to be that people get to know the Lord Jesus and they're going to come in with all their baggage and it's going to take some time to work through that. But it's okay. Jesus is patient and we should be patient. We're not always patient, but we should be patient. Because in the end, the main thing is the main thing. It's that Jesus loves us, that he gave his life for us, that he wants that relationship with us, that he wants us to grow in that. He even wants us to be jealous for him as he is jealous for us. And uh, unity is not uniformity. there's There's a big difference there. Unity is, even though we're all different, we choose to come together in a spirit of unity. We come together 
and the love of God, and we're going to love on each other, even though we know everybody's different. Uniformity is weird. Cults have uniformity. We don't want to... We don't want that kind of uniformity, yeah? If everyone believes exactly the same thing on every given point, something's not healthy there, okay? If, if you're all wearing the same clothes with a little name tag, we've seen those people knocking on our door, okay, that's not, that's not normal. God doesn't want uniformity, he wants unity, which is when we choose to look past the, the, the minor differences that somebody, you know, is, is a immature Christian. And of course, there are those times when we need to we, we need to confront people and, and bring them on the path of maturity, but it's also important not to expect everyone to change everything at, at, the, uh, at the very beginning. And it just kind of reminds me, I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with the story of Calvary Chapel. Uh, I think I heard you, you guys have been two years in August to Calvary Chapel, but one of the, the most important things uh, listed in, in kind of the, the move of Calvary Chapel, there was this moment where at first, the church was only 35 people. In fact, they were going to close the church down because they're like, you know, we don't know. We don't have a pastor. We don't know what to do. We're 35 mostly old people. We might as well just close the door. And they even told, they called Chuck up. They're like, don't even come. We're closing the church. And he said, well, you know, I, I closed down over here. <laughs> you stay open. I'm coming. And so and so he shows up and, and uh, his his daughter starts reaching some hippies and bringing the hippies to church. And at first, Chuck's like, these dirty hippies. These dirty, smelly hippies, go get a job. And they, but he starts praying. He starts praying for these hippies. And he starts getting a burden for these hippies. He starts, he starts seeing them the way that God does through prayer. And, you know, if you love on hippies or any other estranged group of people, then they might bring their friends because, you know, whatever. I mean, right now, I, I don't know, I guess... Uh, transgender and those things are coming into mode where they're where they're popular again. Maybe ten years ago, loving on somebody would be considered loving on a, a, an outsider. But I'm sure there are other groups of estranged people who, uh, if you love on them, then that's going to blow their minds, and they might bring their friends. And in this case, bringing hippie friends from the beach means they don't have shoes and their feet are covered in tar from the beach. You know, in California, you have these little tar flecks that get stuck on the bottom of your foot, and everywhere you walk, you leave little black oil spots. And so the hippies were coming in the church, leaving these little black oil spots. And of course, you know, the people grew up in this church like, yeah, we, they can't come in barefoot, they're ruining the carpet. And it was really an important moment in this church where they say, you know what, it doesn't matter. And they're going to ruin the carpet. But they're going to come here, and they're going to learn about Jesus, and they're going to get discipled, and they're going to get sent out. And that's exactly what happened. And I think it's 1,600 churches came from that dirty group of hippies in, in a matter of decades. Yeah, and that's, that's what we want. Yeah, we, I, I, hope, I hope that's what we all want. Yeah, that, that more than you know, keeping things looking pristine and nice, we want to see God do an incredible work in the next generation. We want to see that happen. And the, the great thing is, even though uh, you guys have so much wisdom, we'll put it that way, you guys are blessed with so much wisdom, and and you might think because of this picture that culture and media gives that, you know, only young people are cool and hip. That's not true. People who need love, they will receive love from anyone. And we are a generation. I can speak for my generation. We need wisdom. And I've seen it again and again. Even if you think, I'm not cool, I'm not hip, you know, I, I tuck in my shirt and I wear the same loafers that I've been wearing for 25 years, I'm not cool. But it doesn't matter. Because love, love is so much more important than what you look like or what you sound like or where you come from. 
Love is the thing that attracts people to Jesus. And sometimes it's even more appealing when it comes from somebody you wouldn't expect it from. You know, like in our church in, in Zegan, we have a BMX and skateboard park. And there, there's some old saints there. They're like 65 years old, you know, and they just waddle in there and they just love on the kids and, and just, you know, these cool like skateboard and BMX kids, you know, and they'll come in there. Oh, how you doing, honey? <laughs> and, and of course it's like, whatever, you know, and then, but like secretly they're like, oh, I love that lady, you know, <laughs> like they don't want to, they don't want to admit that it like touches their heart. But, you know, a lot of those guys, they don't, they don't have father figures or their home life's terrible. Or we have somebody in our neighborhood living with the grandmother because doesn't know her dad situation with the mothers. It's not okay. And, and they just want loved, you know, and that's something that any of us can offer. All of us can offer our love and support and we can, we can change our methods without sacrificing the message. And I think that's a problem with a lot of churches today. They realize something needs to change, but they change their methods and their message. That's not what we want. We, we want to keep the same old gospel as it has always been, but we want to put it in new language. We want to change our method, not our message. The message stays the same. And, and unfortunately, I think it's becoming obvious in America what happens with churches who are willing to continually water down the message of the word. But that's, uh, I've, I've understood that you guys uh, will not stand for that. <laughs> that you guys want to keep the message as, as it has been once and for all entrusted to the saints. And I think that is extremely honorable. And, and that's why I'm so happy to be here today. Sorry, I've probably gone on way too long. I'm going to try to wrap it up here. Um, yeah, but I, I want to encourage you all because I think of, of John Wesley himself who said, Give me ten, ten men who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin, and I will turn this world upside down. Now, he didn't say, give me 10 young, fresh, fresh hip guys or uh, 10 seminary trained guys. He just said, 10 guys who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin, and I will turn this world upside down. And, uh, and that's what God has been doing, and he is doing, and he will continue doing. And I hope uh, that you remain a little bit jealous for the work of God that it would happen also in your midst. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful, beautiful group of people who have come together. We just want to uh, enjoy you. We want to glorify you with their lives, Lord. They, they want to give. They want to not be served, but to serve, to give their lives, Lord. And I imagine there are so many relatives, maybe children or cousins or or nieces or nephews or, or grandchildren who don't know you and are probably weighing on their hearts. I, I just want to lift up all those people before you, God. People who maybe been who have been jaded, who have who have broken contact with the church because they've seen something that's not of you. Because we get it twisted and we and we put culture before we put before Christ. We we put our own priorities in politics before yeah, that what you say is primary. It's coming before you, Lord. And I pray that you would forgive us for ways that we've sinned, for ways that we've treated other people like second-class citizens, where we've, where we've not loved the foreigner, as it says in your word, but where we've been selfish. God, we, we ask for your forgiveness, and we pray that you would make us people that you would be willing to entrust others to, God, that you would entrust us with those broken and beaten down and poor and distraught and, and those seeking refuge who, who can find no refuge anywhere else, that you would make us a refuge for these kinds of people. 
and uh, yeah, that we would meet those people with love and with honor, that we would not meet them as second-class citizens, but that we would do as it says in your word and, and, and put others before ourselves, that we would be the greatest servants of all, not the masters. Because in the end, you're the boss, Jesus. Help us to do what you want. In Jesus' name, amen.